let's start Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. All right, right away, it starts after this. And what have I told you? What matters to me as much as anything when you read scripture? Context matters. So when he says after this, well, after what? In Luke 9, a lot happened. Now, Luke is not necessarily written chronologically. Sometimes it's clumped thematically. But, but he, when he wants you to know that events are sequential, he uses phrases like the next day, eight days later, after this. And so he's saying there's a sequence of events that happened here. And in Luke 9, there are all these dramatic encounters that happened, but they're set up with this phrase in Luke 9, 51. It says, as the time for his ascension drew near, meaning Jesus knew his time on earth was coming to a close, it says he resolutely set out. Or uh, King James says he steadfastly set his face for Jerusalem. He's on a mission, and he's not going to be turned back. He knew, I have a date. I have a destiny on a cross. But before I go, he was about to hand over the whole enterprise. He spent three years teaching and healing and going around and preparing people for the coming of the kingdom. Now it's, it's time to hand that enterprise over because he's not going to be here anymore. And so he says, I need to give them a trial run. It's time for them to venture out on their own. So as he sends these 70 out, your Bible might say 72, uh, interesting translation thing there that doesn't matter this morning. But he gives them this little pep talk and see if this would get you ready to go. Verse 3, go, he said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. <laughs> Sign me up, Jesus. I can't wait to go. That's all right. I'll prepare myself. No, don't take a purse, no money. Don't take a bag, no clothes. Don't even take extra shoes. Just go. And then he gives him instructions about finding places to stay and finding things to eat. He basically says, go, you'll be fine. Just go. You know, when those men went home to tell their wives, hey, I'm, I'm going to be gone for a few days. You know, they have a lot of questions, right? Well, where are you going? I don't know. What are you doing? I don't know. Where are you staying? What are you eating? How long will you be gone? I don't know. Well, let's get a bag packed. Nope, can't do that. Okay, well, let me pack you a lunch. Nope, can't do that either. Well, a sleeping bag? Uh-uh. Favorite pillow? Nope. Spring break is this week. Uh, just a show of hands. How many of you have started packing already to go away? <laughs> uh, it's funny. There are two kinds of people in this world, aren't there? Those who like to know all the details and prepare for every possible eventuality so they can be ultra-prepared and they pack days in advance. And then there are, there's me. <laughs> and what's funny is God's sense of humor, how, he often, how often he puts those two people together. <laughs> to say, now figure something out. I think that's why so many women ended up following Jesus. Because they saw what was happening. They're like, oh, that poor guy. <laughs> he needs, somebody needs to pack a first aid kit. I wonder how long it took him to realize, oh, no, Jesus doesn't really need a first aid kit. <laughs> he's, he's fine. Uh, okay. Jesus didn't give a lot of details because the mission was simple. You go, you land where God leads you, and then see what he does. 
He did give them some mission parameters, though. Verse 9, what are we going to do, Jesus? Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, that's pretty cool, right? Heal the sick and announce God's kingdom. But who are these 70 people given the task of announcing the kingdom, of healing? They're given the authority to heal people. I mean, we haven't seen this before in the ministry of Jesus. We know there were large numbers of people who followed Jesus. They were more than just bystanders, but they weren't insiders like the 12. In chapter 9, Jesus had sent out the 12 with his same basic instructions in Luke 9. He says, summoning the 12, he gave them power and authority over all the demons, power to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And again, take nothing for the road, no walking stick, no traveling bag, no bread, no money. Don't take an extra shirt. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. And again, how cool to be a disciple of Jesus, right? But it makes sense that the 12 would get to do this. These guys were like the special forces of Jesus' ministry. They'd been through the training. They'd spent time with him. We know their names. They'd earned the right, right? But these 70, I mean, they hadn't had that same level of theological training. They didn't have the same exposure, the same history with Jesus. They hadn't been there for the fireside chats. They didn't know Jesus the way the 12 did. And he's going to send them out as his representatives to do his work. I don't know, Jesus. Are you sure that's a good idea? I spent some time this week trying to imagine who were these people that he sent out. And what did they say when they went? And why would he send them out with no provision for a trip that you would normally take? Well, I think I know the answer to that one. One, I want you to rely on God to provide. Don't overthink things. And two, I think they already had everything they needed for success on this trip. Now, I'm going to take some creative liberties here, a sanctified imagination, I hope. But I think who these 70 were, were people whose stories had been rewritten by Jesus so they could testify, this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes near. I had leprosy. I mean, I'm as outcast as outcast could be. I was unclean. I had no human contact for years. And Jesus, he didn't just heal me. He touched me. His touch made me clean. I had an accident. I was paralyzed for all intents and purposes. I thought my life was over. And Jesus didn't just restore my mobility. He restored my mobility as a demonstration of his authority to forgive my sins. He gave me a life I never imagined. I was, I was tormented by a demon. My life was literal hell every day. And Jesus set me free. My son, he was so sick and I was so scared. Jesus, with just a word, made him well. Oh yeah, well, my daughter was dead. And Jesus brought her back to life. My eyes, I was blind from birth and Jesus gave me sight back. Jesus told me truth that I didn't want to hear and opened me up to know God in a way I never knew possible. I wonder if there were women in the crowd. It just says 70. It doesn't say 70 men. Maybe he sent women to tell other women about this man who 
saw their value and their worth and their dignity and affirmed them as part of God's family in ways that nobody else did. Maybe they were children who went to other kids to say, he's so nice. He plays games with us. He's fun. You should meet him. 70 people, 70 stories, each story different, but with one common denominator. I met Jesus and he changed my life. So let's step away from Luke 9 for a minute. Over the last six months, we've been telling the story of God's purpose for us from the beginning. We were created and placed here to tend and steward and expand his kingdom. And at the beginning, that meant all the earth. The sin of Genesis 3 was the corruption of that divine calling because of our desire to establish our own kingdom where we make the rules. We determine right and wrong. The sin was a rejection of God's authority. It was a a repudiation of his goodness, all based on the lie that Satan told them. But God, in his mercy, set in motion a plan that was already in place that he would call a people to be his own, to partner with him as at the beginning to rescue, renew, redeem, restore his kingdom on earth. Then the coming of Jesus was the revelation of that plan and is coming again is the complete like the completion the fulfillment the restoration of things as they were meant to be at the beginning in the meantime between the first coming and the second coming that calling and that mission remains his church has a commission like Tyler mentioned or in our core 52 book this week he calls it a co-mission and I like that word partnering with God to continue his work of redemption and renewal and restoration, bringing to God the broken hearts, the broken lives, the broken futures, the broken world around us so he can put them back together. In Luke 4, Jesus said, here's why I'm here. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God is with you and God is for you. That's the story Jesus told. That's the story he still wants to tell through the church. And the church isn't preachers and buildings and live streams and programs. The church is you. The story we tell is the story you tell. But I know what you may be thinking because it may be what I am thinking too. Well, my story isn't exciting. I've never had leprosy. I haven't had a dramatic encounter that changed everything. I was a church kid. Never got into trouble. Don't say anything. (laughs) Never been sick. Never really struggled. Nobody's going to be inspired by my story. Or maybe you're thinking, well, my story isn't about a dramatic change because I'm still struggling with the same sins, the same temptations, the same addictions, the same destructive thoughts and behaviors that I've wrestled with for years. How am I supposed to tell a story about victory in Jesus when I feel like I've not won much lately? Last week we said the primary weapon our enemy uses against us is lies. Deceptive ideas that throw everything out of whack until it just becomes our normal. Well, I guess this is who I'll always be. 
but we do have victory in Jesus. And that's the tension I wanted us to wrestle with this last week. What does it mean? How do we overcome Satan's lies and live in victory? 16 to 1700 years ago, a, a young man named Evagrius Ponticus was asking that same question. What does it mean to live in victory? How do I put on Christ like the Bible says? So late in the fourth century, Evagrius Ponticus said, well, I want to live as much like Jesus as I can. And as he read the gospel, he saw that Jesus began his ministry by going to the wilderness and doing battle with Satan. And he said, well, that seems like a good idea. I'll do that too. And so he went into the Egyptian desert to wage war with the devil. Well, word got out that this young monk was doing that, and the rumor was that he was winning, and so people started coming from all over, trekking into the wilderness to ask him, how do we overcome the devil and his lies? Well, a fellow monk, and I'm assuming these were Coptic Christians in the fourth century in the Egyptian desert, but a fellow monk told him, you know, Evagrius, you're not going to be here forever. You're not going to live forever. Not everybody can come to you in the desert. You should write down what you've learned. And he did, and the result is a book called Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. What a great title for a book. Now, it's not nearly as dramatic as it sounds. It's not incantations and special words and how do you hold your mouth. It's basically his journal of the lies that he had believed and the biblical truths he used to counter those lies. He trained himself, as the Apostle Paul put it, to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's where the battle is won. That's where the story is written. This might be worth writing down because I think this could be useful for us First of all, in our own stories, but then as we'll see also in the stories we tell to others. So here's the basic formula in his journal. Number one, what's the thought, emotion, or sensation? W write an obsessive thought that keeps coming to mind. A lie that you just can't shake. A toxic emotion like shame or worry. Or a physical sensation. My, my chest is tight, and I don't know why. My, my, I can't breathe deep. I, I just have this overwhelming sense of dread. Whatever it is that you experience, write it down. So you write down, I received a critical performance review at work, and I just can't stop thinking about it. I can't sleep. I have no peace. Just write down what it is. Number two, what's the lie behind what you're thinking or feeling? Identify the lie behind the thought or the emotion or the sensation and figure out, okay, what am I attaching significance to that shouldn't be? For example, my security is in my job. Criticism of my performance is an attack on my safety. Okay, that's a, an attachment behind that thought or that feeling. Number three, what's the truth? And he would write down a scripture that counters the lie and then he said, deliberately turn your mind to that truth whenever you experience that thought, that emotion, that sensation. So you could do Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I, should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Anytime I start to feel that anxiety, that, 
I, it's a negative review. And I, my security, my safety, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Those thoughts are going to keep coming up. You train yourself to meditate on the scripture. Now, I don't know how long Evagrius was in the desert, but his journal has over 500 entries. 500 lies he identified that it affected his life. 500 deceptive ideas that had disordered his desires. And 500 scriptures God was using to rewrite his life into an ongoing story of freedom. Now, here's why I'm telling you about Evagrius Ponticus. Satan's lies have imprisoned people we know and love and work with and live with and sit beside in class and cross paths with every day. And people desperately want to be free, but they may not think freedom is even possible. But if they hear that someone somewhere is learning how to live in freedom, they'll come to find out how to do it. And that's where you come in. Your story doesn't have to be of dramatic change, a miraculous encounter that blows everybody's mind. Your story can simply be, man, I found freedom in the truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free, and I know that that's true. So maybe at a time in your life, you lived in slavery to the lie. I have to stay busy all the time because you believe that your worth is found in your productivity. I, just, I can't stop. I can't sit down. I just have to be moving all the time. But then you went to the words of Jesus when he said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And by trusting him and doing less, your life has become so much more full. I bet you know somebody who needs to hear that truth. Maybe you were held in bondage to the lie that you could never overcome your past. That God could never love you because your sins and your mistakes and your regrets define who you are. But then you committed yourself to meditating on Isaiah's words. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. And by returning to that truth over and over and over again, you learn to walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Do you know anybody who could use that truth? I do. Or maybe you lived with a lie that stuff could make you happy because your worth was attached to the impression that you gave to people around you. And it wasn't until you learned that Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through the strength Christ gives me, that that was stated in, in the context of learning to do without that's when you were able to break the cycle of debt and shame and hiding a disordered inner life behind a well-packaged outer life. You said, I don't have to do that anymore. And I know you have friends who are absolutely captive to that lie. Who just want to escape. So many lies. You're not lovable. Nobody wants to be around you. So many lies. Countered by the truth of Christ. Last week we saw that the Apostle Paul said multiple times, put on Christ, clothe yourselves in Christ. And he said, and don't even think about gratifying your sinful desires. Don't even let that lie take root in your mind. But how do you do that? That was the question we wrestled with. 
Well, Evagrius showed us, will you fix your eyes on him, the one who is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and he is excellent and he is praiseworthy. And Paul says, dwell on him, meditate on his truth, allow him to reorder and reshape your life so you can preach good news to the poor. You can proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. You can set the captives free. That's not the calling of the specially trained or the special forces or the well-educated. That's the call, the co-mission of the church. And again, who's the church? Yeah, you're the church. In Romans 2, Paul used an interesting phrase. And it's not often that different translations translate a verse the same way. They all find their own way. But all nine translations I have on my Bible app rendered this phrase the same way. In Romans 2.16, it says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, we're in the middle of a sentence, according to my gospel. Now, that's the interesting phrase that everybody translates the same way. Not according to the gospel. We know what the gospel is. But he says, according to my gospel. Now, there's some contextual things that I don't want to abuse, and so I'm not going to go too far on this. But I don't think I'm too far out of line to apply it this way. Next week, we're going to dive deeper into what is the gospel. When we, we use it to reference the accounts of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's just a word that means good news. So when Jesus sent out the 70 with the command to heal the sick and announce the kingdom of God, he was telling them, take them good news. Take them your gospel. The story of divine provision meeting human need. They each had their own gospel to share. Not in a my truth, your truth, whatever man way, but the story of man he met me right where I needed him to be. So we have the leper's gospel and the blind man's gospel and the apostle Paul's gospel and my gospel. We all start at different places, but they all end with Jesus. And you have a story of divine provision meeting your need. It doesn't have to be dramatic. But you have a lie that you've been set free from. You have a story of your character being formed over time by consistent immersion in the way of Jesus. You have a gospel to share that no one else can share. And you have an opportunity to tell it to people that none of the rest of us will ever reach. It's your story of finding freedom, sometimes fighting one inch at a time that will give someone else the courage to trust Jesus with one inch of their lives and then another and then another until they know the joy of his salvation. That's the power of your gospel. So back to Luke 10, this amazing thing Jesus said as he's commissioning the 70 to go out. Verse 16, he said, look, it's your story, but Whoever listens to you, they're really listening to me. Whoever rejects you is rejecting me. Now, do you get that? You don't have to be afraid to share your story of divine provision meeting your need because your gospel is his story. And if you share it, he's going to use it. 
I glossed over a little detail earlier, but I want to come back to that now in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And I love this. Because wherever you take the gospel, Jesus is going to come along too. Wherever you're willing to step out and say, let me tell you the story of what God has done for me. Jesus is going to step in behind you and say, he's right. Let me show you too. And so they went and they shared their stories and they brought healing to disordered lives. And they found their purpose and they found significance and they found joy like they'd never known before. And I'm sure they were there on the day of Pentecost when the church was launched and spread around the world because they'd seen this is what it's like to partner with God. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Us, really? And he said to them, guys, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. And then I love verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. The NIV says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Man, what a great picture that is. Like, yes, you did it. And he gave all praise to the Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned. They didn't have to be educated and trained and equipped and have certifications behind their name. No, you've revealed these things to infants. All they have is their story. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. He wants to use you to do his work. All we need is one thing to share. I was lost and I'm found. I was blind. I see I was in prison and he broke my chains. I met Jesus and he changed everything. We're going to sing a song. Let's go ahead and stand. It reminds us who Jesus is and what he's done. We all have a story to tell.